The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dalamore. All right. Thank you for joining us for this very special Patreon-supported, Patreon-created third GOP debate coverage. God damn. Talk about... Oh, I am Jesse Dollimore. <laughs> and Brittany Page sits across from me, humbly and tired as shit. She just said before I flipped on the mics, isn't there a way that you can just record me saying yes, no, oh, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> and then just use those as drops to agree or disagree with things that I say? I'm not sure why I thought that would go over because <laughs> when do I ever just say yeah. Right. Like, no. Your role on the show is just to either agree, disagree, or say maybe. <laughs> just one word responses. Right. But it's been a rough day for me because I've been sick and I had my, my first absence. Of all of your grad school. Yeah. Yeah, your so very first one today. It was very disturbing, but I was very, very sick. But I'm feeling. There was a lot of puking done yesterday. So I'm feel- or between yesterday and today. Yeah, so puking. Uh huh. Lots so, and lots of puke was but, coming out of Brittany Page. But I'm doing better now, so that's what matters. <laughs> but still tired. So right. Well, we do the debate, and then I have to. I effectively have to listen to the debate three fucking times because <laughs> which is not fun this round because this one <laughs> this was. one was a snooze fest. It really was boring as shit, and it's not just because. The content is dry because it's economics mainly and tax plans and jobs. and Right. So it's none of that, that fun stuff. Yeah, that's not real sexy to me. That's not exciting. The social issues are fun. Yeah, for sure. You know, what politics is for me. And ugh, not good. So before we start with Eclipse, I just want to, first of all, clearly thank you, our Patreon supporters and our PayPal supporters, because without you, we wouldn't be doing this and... You know, this is large a large part of moving the conversation forward, as we always say, because we really want to get to the truth and, you know, show the winners and losers in the debates and show really the credible candidates. You know, we're separating the wheat from the chaff, as they say. So in the spirit of that, let's talk about a little little bit the winners and the losers in this debate. Um We've this has been so rapid fire. Brittany and I really haven't even had a time time to really talk about this before we're we're going to cut the episode. So we'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> so what what were your? I guess I'll, should I put you on the spot first, or should I? Yeah, that's fine. I've I've looked at some headlines, so I know what my opinion is. Um, <laughs> wow! No, wow, that's nice. No, I was feeling this way anyway, but. Some of the headlines are reporting that this debate was really negative for Ben Carson and Donald Trump because they were asked really tough questions. Um, and, and didn't answer. Right. Particularly yeah. about foreign policy issues. And they did not have good answers. And in fact, 
I don't even remember hearing from Ben Carson a lot on them. So I'm not sure he got a lot of the difficult questions, but Donald Trump certainly did. And when he would try to talk about foreign policy, it was like listening to a kid try to, yeah, like just throwing out buzzwords and like certain countries that maybe didn't have anything to do with what he was talking about. Like when Rand Paul calls him out, I'm sure we'll play that later. Um, so I think it was particularly negative for the people that were in front. Right. Well, also Fiorina, I think, is she's her support is slowly going to start eroding because she's just she doesn't have what it takes. She thinks that the more you talk and the more deliberate you speak with your words, they do this. I will not. They did this. I will not. I mean, she's uh, <laughs> that the is same how she talks fucking thing over and over and over. And I think her days are numbered. She also, for someone who's so successful, doesn't know how to use a microphone. I know that you talked about that. It was almost like it was in her mouth a lot of the time. Yeah, her and Ben Carson both. Really, I mean, they've. there's no excuse for this. Because come the first or second debate, your team should say, ah, oh, shit, we better... Let's teach them how to talk into a microphone. Right. That's what I was thinking. Or even during the commercial break on this debate, why wasn't her team like, hey, you're you're really coming in hot with the mic. You need to <laughs> you need to tone it down. We can hear your lips smacking every time you talk. And well, that's Ben Carson's favorite thing. I mean, it's it's terrible it, it, for me. It drives me goddamn nutty mm-hmm. to hear bad mic technique. But mm. it's <laughs> anyway, but but it's it's not just. It, it, the other candidates don't do it. There are there are those who, you know, it's, I don't know. Anyway, I think she's on her way out. But I think ultimately, I think the winners, as much as I don't want to say it, Marco Rubio uh, did very well. I think Ted Cruz also did well for the Republican audience. He knows where his bread is buttered. He knows when to get his snarky comments in there and to make attacks on the media. And I think John Kasich did well. And I... And I think Rand Paul also did pretty well. I think Rand Paul did very well. and Especially also, compared to his previous performances. Yeah. And also John Kasich. I, I think that my personal bias against Ted Cruz does not allow me <laughs> to admit that he did a good job. Yeah. I just do not like him. And... Well, I have to really try to extricate myself from my own hateful opinions about some of these people because... You know, Ted Cruz, he got some good shots in, was doing pretty well, and I don't want him to... I really want him to fall flat on his face, right? On his fucking face, Brittany Page. I just... it it For Ted Cruz, it was done for me when he gives his final statement. And the way he starts talking... Uh, yeah, when yeah. you guys hear it, you'll know. It, the way his voice changes, and the, the blowing of the wind, and... <laughs> Will you, uh, come on, you're just slimy and fake. I don't know, I just don't like it. Right. Well, let's begin. First, I want to warn everyone, there's far fewer clips than there normally is because this debate kind of turned into a little bit of a shit show where candidates would interject and then a simple question and answer with one candidate ends up being a six or a seven minute thing because someone jumps in there and wants to get their, their, their points in, which oddly enough, turned out to be a good thing because we really got to some truth or some divergent opinions. So we'll start with the opening question, which was to Donald Trump about the minimum wage. 
Candidates, as we gather tonight in this very august theater, just outside and across the country, picketers are gathering as well. They're demanding an immediate hike in the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Just a few hours ago, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo proposed doing the same for all state workers, the first governor to do so. Mr. Trump, as the leading presidential candidate on this stage, and one whose tax plan exempts couples making up to $50,000 a year from paying any federal income taxes at all, are you sympathetic to the protesters' cause since a $15 wage works out to about $31,000 a year? I can't be, Neil. And the reason I can't be is that we are a country that is being beaten on every front, economically, militarily. There is nothing that we do now to win. We don't win anymore. Our taxes are too high. I've come up with a tax plan that many, many people like very much. It's going to be a tremendous plan. I think it'll make <laughs> our country and our economy very dynamic. But taxes too high, wages too high, we're not going to be able to compete against the world. I hate to say it, but we have to leave it the way it is. People have to go out, they have to work really hard, and they have to get into that upper stratum. But we cannot do this if we are going to compete with the rest of the world. We just can't do it. So do not raise the minimum wage. I would not raise the minimum. Dr. Carson, you have long... So here's, here's my thing on this. Well, one, I'm going to separate my analysis here from my, my opinion on the minimum wage because I don't necessarily think that we need to be raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I've, intrinsically, I've got an issue with it. But he's equating, like, we're not going to win in the world anymore because we can't compete if we raise the minimum wage to that high of a level. Right. Well, we're going raising the minimum wage of McDonald's workers or people who work at Jack in the Box, Burger King, fast food entry level jobs isn't going to take us off the out of competition with the rest of the world in manufacturing and because those those higher paid jobs that are like manufacturing and factory work assembly those aren't paying minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So he's 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 conflating two things that shouldn't be compared. Right. Because it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Of course, I mean, I don't know why I even act like I'm surprised, but it, it is a little shocking that Donald Trump wouldn't have a more substantive answer amongst the financial questions. Well, I was following Twitter while this debate was going on, obviously. I was not. I was furiously writing eight pages of notes. And... <laughs> Well, I have to try to catch all the fact-checking, right? But I liked this thing that The Atlantic tweeted after Donald Trump said this. They said, starting off with wages too high, Donald Trump really shows off the fact that he is an employer, not an employee. (laughs) And I really liked that because, you know, he's taking this position. And, I mean, he's never been in a position to get the minimum wage. Never. Never. So, of course, he's going to have this opinion and and kind of shrug off the plight of people that are working minimum wage jobs. Well, it's not even that for me. It's the fact that his just his base level of not understanding that 
that we are still going to be able to compete, even if we do raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, it doesn't put us out of sync on the world stage competitively economically. Well, especially since, according to Pew Research Center, minimum wage workers are more likely to be young, white, women, and part-time. Right. So. Well, up next, it's still something related. They went to Ben Carson uh, surrounding the same topic. Dr. Carson, you have long bemoaned this lackluster recovery, and this Facebook map shows that Americans share your concern. The green represents how the jobs issue is resonating all across this nation, especially here in the state of Wisconsin. You've suggested one minimum wage does not fit all, and that perhaps we should offer a lower or starter wage for young people. Those protesters outside are looking for $15 and nothing less. Where are you? Well, first of all, <clears throat> delighted to be here. Uh, my family's here, and my little granddaughter, who's three years old, said she wanted to come to the debate. <laughs> so this is very cool. Um, as far as the, the minimum wage is concerned, people need to be educated on the minimum wage. Every time we raise the minimum wage, the number of jobless people increases. It's particularly a problem in the black community. Only 19.8% of black teenagers have a job. We're looking for one. You know, that, and that's because of those high wages. If you lower those wages, that comes down. You know, I can remember as a youngster, you know, my first job working in a laboratory as a lab assistant and multiple other jobs. But I would not have gotten those jobs if someone had to pay me a large amount of money. But what I did gain from those jobs is a tremendous amount of experience and how to operate in the world and how to relate to different people and how to become a responsible individual. And that's what gave me what I needed to ascend the ladder of opportunity in this country. That's what we need to be thinking about. How do we allow people to ascend the ladder of opportunity rather than how do we give them everything and keep them dependent? So, sir, just to be clear, you would not raise it? I would not raise it. So in May, Ben Carson, is reported by The Hill, said that I think probably it should be higher than it is now. (laughs) Talking about the minimum wage. And now he says no. So that was in May of this year. Right. Just so everybody knows. Sounds a little like a (laughs) flip-flop, as they say. He thinks it should have been higher than... Now, things are different. And again, it it really points to the fact that he just fundamentally doesn't understand the minimum wage. Uh, He says, you know, that all the the different lab jobs that he had as a kid or as a young man, he wouldn't have gotten those jobs if they would have had to have paid him a large amount of money. Well, see, that's where he, if the minimum wage, the minimum wage is a certain amount, they... Anybody they hire, they're going to have to pay that amount. So it's not like, oh, we have to pay that that guy $15? We're not going to hire him because we want to spend $10 an hour. If it's the minimum wage, anybody they hire, it's going to be that amount. So your job is, is safe. Right. So he said every time we raise the minimum wage, the number of jobless people increases. That's right. Yeah. He <laughs> Right. And this was rated as false. Um, from PolitiFact, that statement. And the reason it was, it was rated false is because there's the, the, the different times that the minimum wage has been raised, 
50% of the times, roughly, job joblessness increased, and 50% of the times, it decreased. So it, there is no hard, fast data for him to make just a blanket statement that this is the way it is all the time is false. Right. You basically summed up my summary. So oh, and now I don't have to read my summary. <laughs> sorry. Sorry about that. That's okay. Well, moving on, John Kasich, he... Oh, not moving on. All right. So, summer jobs, the thing that he said about the racial disparity, that is true. Um, According to Pew Research Center, there is a large racial disparity in teen employment patterns, with the summer surge in youth employment basically not existing at all for black and Hispanic teens. But... Um, it's reported that it's it's tempting to attribute this deep shift to the fundamental structure of the American economy, but one important factor here seems to be that kids these days don't want to work. Right. So. Well, even even the unemployment rate generally for for adults is starkly different for whites than it is for blacks. A lot higher unemployment rate for blacks. Right. This analysis from Vox says that work is less appealing when non-work isn't shameful. So when it's kind of accepted that, I guess, working is less prevalent among the teenage population and it's not like, oh, you should be working, Mm -hmm. then if there's no drive to do that, then, well, why work? Yeah, right on. So can I I do it now? Yes. Moving on. (laughs) John Kasich has asked kind of the steps to a balanced budget and what he would do. He is famously, I guess I don't have to say it because he will, I'm sure, say it. Uh, he was chairman of the, the House Budget Committee and was responsible for the last time the federal budget was balanced. And here's how it went down. We've asked people on Facebook to submit their questions for the candidates. Seth Bell wrote, we are approaching $20 trillion in national debt. Specifically, what plans do you have to cut federal spending? Governor Kasich. You have spoken much about your success in balancing the budget under President Clinton. Today, the national debt is at record highs and growing unsustainably. Interest will be the fastest growing part of the federal budget, tripling over the next 10 years. Social Security, the lifeline of millions of American seniors, is rushing toward insolvency. With all of the tax plans presented tonight, estimated to cost anywhere between 2 and $12 trillion over a decade. What specific steps will you take to balance the budget? First of all, let me just say that uh, in the state of Ohio, and I'm the only acting executive on, on this stage today, we do have a moderate increase in the minimum wage. And I got to tell you, my father carried mail on his back. His father was a coal miner. He died of black lung. He was losing his eyesight. My mother's mother lived with us. She could barely speak English. I come from a town where if the wind blew the wrong way, people found themselves out of work. And economic theory is fine, but you know what? People need help. Now, I have uh, a plan that in fact would cut taxes, but not 11 or 12 trillion dollars, that would put my children further in debt. I have a plan that would not only cut taxes, lower the income tax rate for individuals, lower the tax for businesses so businesses will compete here and not move operations overseas, and also a plan, the only plan of anybody standing on this stage to get us to a balanced budget by the end of a second term. And, you know, the simple fact of the matter is we hear a lot of promises in this debate, a lot of promises about these 
tax cuts or tax schemes sometimes that I call them. Hillary and the Democrats promise everything on the spending side. We've got to be responsible about what we, what we propose on the tax side. Yes, lower taxes, lower spending. My website, johnkasick.com, will show you exactly how we balance the budget. I balanced the budget in Washington as a chief architect, and I have balanced it in Ohio for one reason. When you balance the budget and you cut taxes, people get work. And our most important moral purpose as leaders in the political system is to make sure we create an environment for job creation so people can live their dreams and realize their God-given potential. That's why it's so important. And for those at the bottom, we've got to do what we can to train them so they can move up. But to just look the other way is not acceptable because, you know what, as the governor of Ohio, I have to deal with real challenges, and we've gotten it done in our state, and I will do it for America. Did you want to name any specific steps, sir? Sure. We would move the Medicare system from a 7% growth down to about a 5% growth. And I have a whole series of ways to do that. In Ohio, we reduced Medicaid funding for the poor from 10% to 2.5%, didn't cut one benefit, or didn't take anybody off the rolls. Why? Because we're innovators. I've been an innovator my entire career, and I really don't care what special interests or lobbyists have to say. I have a job to do when I take over a public office. Now, we freeze non-defense discretionary for eight years. We also put an increase in defense spending. Our tax cuts balance out, and at the end of the day, we will get to a balanced budget. And I want everybody here to know, when I was budget committee chairman in Washington, I stepped on every toe in that town, and we got to a balanced budget, and we had enormous job growth. And as governor of Ohio, we went from 350,000 lost jobs to a gain of 347,000 jobs. I'll do it in Washington. I've done it twice. I'll do it thrice for the United States of America. So when he says that he was one of the chief architects of balancing the federal budget, that is mostly true. So effectively true. It's pretty fucking true. And then the talking point where he says that he balanced the budget for Ohio, 538 tweeted, don't give Kasich credit for balancing Ohio's budget. He's required to by law. And we talked about that last time that, you know, several states... Most of the right. states, I don't remember how many states require that by law. And I guess I haven't looked into for sure if Ohio is one of those states. But 538 is saying don't give him credit for doing that. So, yeah. well, I would I would I would tend to trust that they're not going to give bad information. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just maybe it's maybe it's a difference between um, the constitution, constitutionality of it in their state and like, you know, regulatory framework. So it, it likely is he's required to do so, whether it be statutorily or or, you know, legally, constitutionally. So so back to Ben Carson, he was directly asked about trust issues because of the, some of the, the bullshit that's been going on surrounding him. And this is how it went down. Let's get right back to our questions, Dr. Carson, to you. You recently railed against the double standard in the media, sir, that seems obsessed with inconsistencies and potential exaggerations in your life story, but looked the other way when it came to then-Senator Barack Obama's. Still, as a candidate whose brand has always been trust, are you worried your campaign, which you've always said, sir, is bigger than you, is now being hurt by you? Uh, Well, first of all, uh, thank you for not asking me what I said in the 10th grade. I appreciate that. (laughs) 
<laughs> but, uh, I'll just forget that follow-up there. <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, you know, what we, we, we should vet all candidates. I have no problem with being vetted. What I do have a problem with is being lied about and then uh, putting that out there as truth. And I don't even mind that so much if they do it about, with everybody, like people on the other side. But, you know, when I look at somebody like Hillary Clinton, uh, who, who sits there and, and tells her daughter and a government official that, no, this was a terrorist attack, and then tells everybody else that it was a video, where I came from, they call that a lie. And... Uh, I, I think that's very different from, you know, somebody misinterpreting when I said that I was offered a scholarship to West Point. That's the words that they use. But I've had many people come and say the same thing to me. That's what people do in those situations. We have to start treating people the same and finding out what people really think and what they're made of. And people who know me know that I'm an honest person. Thank you, Dr. Carson. So interesting because you know what they call a lie where I'm from is when you say you did something that never happened. Mm-hmm. When you when you say you were offered a scholarship to an organization that doesn't offer a scholarship until you are accepted, until you've applied and accepted, been accepted to the, to the university, that you're a liar when you say that you were offered a full scholarship. You're a liar when you say you stabbed someone in the belt buckle and there is zero proof. No one knows. No one can can talk to. You've told the story multiple different ways, different times. That typically is a lie. Yes, he's lying his ass off. But um, (laughs) also, I love how he's like, thanks for not asking me about things I said when I was in, I think he said 10th grade. You're the one who's talking about that. You, right. they are playing clips of you from months ago on shows where you are spontaneously bringing these stories up. You, they are not being asked about at that point. You are the one that's talking about them, trying to make everyone believe that you were this very angry and hostile character when you were younger. And now people are wanting to talk about that. Yeah, they're vetting your story now. Right. So don't get all pissed off and say oh thanks for not asking me about these meaningless things that i used to talk about no you're still talking about them it's not like they recorded your private conversation in your home talking to someone and they're vetting that they're vetting statements you've made on national news programs yes and you're trying to be the president of the united states right we want to know if our president really tried to hit his mom in the head with a hammer or, or, or chase anyone around with a hammer. I mean, he has said that he used to just like chase people around with hammers and stuff uh, and bricks and stones. Right. That's seriously what he said. All right. Next up, they talked to Trump a little bit about immigration and Kasich and Jeb both mix it up with him a little bit. And this is where the debate got really good for me. It left the area of completely dry and fucking boring and moved into some territory of a little bit of entertainment, but also 
challenging just the blanket bullshit that was being propagated by Trump and Carson and, and the like. They, they're just allowed to answer any way, say anything, and no challenge happens. So I really, I, I credit Kasich this way because he came to fucking win. He came to play, and he wasn't just going to sit there and let the bullshit get said. He challenged on a lot, and I appreciated it. Mr. Trump, a federal appeals court just dealt a blow to the Obama administration's plan to prevent the deportation of 5 million people living in this country illegally. The White House is appealing to the Supreme Court. At heart of this issue is the effect that illegal immigrants are having on our economy. What will you do about it? I was so happy yesterday when I saw that decision come down. That was an unbelievable decision. And we don't have enough of those decisions coming down. He of the executive order, because nobody wants to listen to him, including the Democrats. So he just goes around signing executive orders. That was a great day. And frankly, we have to stop illegal immigration. It's hurting us economically. It's hurting us from every standpoint. It's causing tremendous difficulty with respect to drugs and what that does to many of our inner cities in particular. And it really is, is, was such a, an unbelievable moment because the courts have not been ruling in our favor. And it was a two-to-one decision, and it was a terrific thing that, that happened. And I will tell you, we are a country of laws. We need borders. We will have a wall. The wall will be built. The wall will be successful. And if you think walls don't work, all you have to do is ask Israel. The wall works, believe me. Properly done. Believe me. Can you just send five million people back with no effect on the economy? You're going to have to bring people. You're going to have to send people out. Look, so we're, what a country, will you do? we're a country of laws. We either have a country or we don't have a country. We are a country of laws. You're going to have to go out and they'll come back. But they're going to have to go out and hopefully they get back. But we have no choice if we're going to run our country properly and if we're going to be a country. Thank you, sir. Maria, can we comment Casey. on that? Senator, Senator can we, Rubio. Can we comment on that? Yeah, one quick comment. Yes, sir. Well, look, in 1986, Ronald Reagan basically said the people who were here, if they were law-abiding, could stay. What didn't happen is we didn't, we didn't build the walls effectively and we didn't control the border. We need to. We need to control our border just like people have to control who goes in and out of their house. But if people think that we are going to ship 11 million people who are law-abiding, who are in this country, and somehow pick them up at their house and ship them out of Mexico to Mexico, think about the families. Think about the children. So, you know, the answer really is if they've been law-abiding, they pay a penalty, they get to stay. We protect the wall. Anybody else comes over, they go back. But for the 11 million people, come on, folks. We all know you can't pick them up and ship them across, back across the border. It's a silly argument. It's not an adult all argument. It makes no all sense. All I can say is you're lucky in Ohio that you struck oil. That's for one thing. Let me just tell you. I'm stopping it there for a second. Again, he's doing what Trump does. He's deflecting. He's going back to an economics and a jobs thing. Has nothing to do with immigration whatsoever. He's just trying to get a barb out there because Donald Trump is just 
on his face just a prick. <laughs> that Dwight Eisenhower, good president, great president, people liked him. I like Ike, right? The expression, I like Ike. Moved a million and a half illegal immigrants out of this country. Let's, let's give a little background on this thing that he's talking about. Yeah, uh, so sorry about this name. Yeah, but no, I could say it. The name of this particular operation, this Eisenhower operation, was Operation Wetback. That is what he's touting here as a win for the United States relative to immigration policy. Right, and he doesn't say that. No, no, he doesn't. But, but that I'm, is the name. Right. And he's talking about this wonderful program. No. Right. No. <laughs> so anyway, we'll we'll let it continue. Keeping in mind that what he's talking about is Operation Wetback. Moved them just beyond the border, they came back. Moved them again beyond the border, they came back. Didn't like it. Moved them way south, they never came back. <laughs> Dwight Eisenhower. You don't get nicer, you don't get friendlier. They moved a million and a half people out. We have no choice. We have no choice. So he just Thank you. Just Governor, 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 Governor Bush. Like Jerry, Governor Bush. Gerald, it was just, just like, I got What happened back. to my Governor, back? You know, you're not going to have my back. I'm going to have my back. Let Governor, me say a couple things here. First Governor, of all, we have Governor, grown, you should let Jeff speak. We have grown. No, it's unfair. In the state of Ohio. Governor. In the state of Ohio, in the state of Ohio, we have grown 347,000 jobs. Our unemployment is half of what it was. Our fracking industry, energy industry, may have contributed 20,000. But if Mr. Trump understood that the real jobs come in the downstream, not in the upstream, but in the downstream, and that's where we're going to get our jobs. But Ohio is diversified. And little false little things, sir, they, don't, they, they really don't work when it comes to the truth. So the fact is, all I'm suggesting, we can't ship 11 million people out of this country. Children would be terrified and it will okay. not work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Trump, truth. you've had a good... Can I let me just... Let's, built an unbelievable company worth billions and billions of dollars. I don't have to hear from this man. Believe me. I don't have to hear from him. Uh. Mr. Trump... Mr. Trump, you yourself... Didn't make the audience happy either. You yourself said, let uh, Governor Bush speak. Governor Bush. Uh, thank you, Donald, for allowing me to speak at the debate. That's really nice of you. really appreciate that. <laughs> what a generous man you are. Twelve million illegal immigrants to, to send them back, 500,000 a month, is just not, not possible. And it's not embracing American values. And it would tear communities apart. And it would send a signal that we're not the kind of country that I know America is. And even having this conversation sends a powerful signal. They're doing high fives in the Clinton campaign right now when they hear this. That's the problem with this. We have to win the presidency. And the way you win the presidency is to have practical plans. Lay them out there. What we need to do is allow people to earn legal status where they pay a fine, where they work where they don't commit crimes, where they learn English, and over an extended period of time, they earn legal status. That's the path, a proper path to make this work. Senator Rubio. Yeah. Senator. 
We have millions Senator of people right now online trying to come into this country. Very, very unfair to the people that want to come into our country legally. They've gone through the process. They're online. They're waiting. Very, very unfair to them. That I can tell you. So in reading more about this operation that Donald Trump was Loving. You know, singing the praises of. Operation Wetback. You mean Donald Trump's favorite thing? Yeah, talking about how Eisenhower was such a great guy. Nice guy. <laughs> um, this this article from factcheck.org says some 800 bo- Border Patrol agents using Jeeps, trucks, automobiles, and spotter airplanes use a system described officially as blocking it off and mopping it up. Agents quickly expanded the operation to the entire state of California, including industrial areas as well as agricultural areas. By mid-July 1954, the operation was extended to Texas, and it eventually encompassed mopping up activities in northern cities as well. The Mexican nationals were shipped back using trucks, buses, planes, and ships. According to the Texas State Historical Society, the use of ships was discontinued after some drownings caused a public outcry in Mexico. Hmm. So what I envision here while I'm reading this is just chaos. I mean, it seems, yeah. Going out just into... a fucking free-for-all. Right. And like just picking people up and, and, and putting them in a bus, a truck, a plane, a right. ship... And, and they didn't even have the technological advantages that we have relative to cataloging and instant access to data. You know what I mean? It was 1954. Right. And so it kind of goes to Jeb Bush's point, which is the image that Donald Trump is painting. That's not like representative of America. It's no. kind of a disturbing thing to like go out and grab these people and like leave the kids there. I mean, it's just right. It sounds very dehumanizing. It's it, it, it's out of line with the spirit of America and what we represent. So, and of course, not a shocker that Donald Trump is on board. So. If you have people that you know that are really digging Trump's immigration plan, please Google the operation and share with them the name of the operation that he loves so much. Right. And share with them a little information about what really happened during... That's why we do the the background here, to give the audience some ammunition when talking to, you know, their less intelligent friends. (laughs) (laughs) There is one thing in that exchange that I want to talk about that I really thought was great, and it's when Jeb Bush talks about, look, we're here to, we're about winning the presidency, and that the Clinton campaign, they are high-fiving each other right now, that we're being bogged down and talking about this bullshit, this inhumane, terrible shit that you're talking about, that you act like is the the only way to go, and it's on point. It really is, because... All Americans, whether you be Democrat, whether you be Republican or conservative or liberal or wherever you label yourself, we should want an open, honest, free exchange of real ideas in a presidential election. We should want, Democrats should want the best Republican possible to run, and Republicans should want the most qualified and best viable candidate for the Democrats to want to win. Because that is ultimately how we're going to have a better country. Because if, if it comes down to a coin toss, you want one of, the, one of the two, whoever it is, to be a capable, qualified, decent person. So I'm, I'm glad Jeb Bush said that. And it actually it resonates a few times 
through or it comes up again a few times throughout. So moving on to Carly Fiorina talking about alleviating pressures on small business. Um anyway, this is her answers really led to the debate being boring as hell. We go back to Facebook. Dwayne Wesley Cato asks on Facebook, how do we get rid of regulations choking our businesses? Ms. Fiorina, specifically under the President's Affordable Care Act, employers with 50 or more employees are required to offer health insurance or be fined. Many are opting to pay the fine. Others are cutting back employee hours to duck the law altogether. What specific ways will you alleviate the pressure on small business? Well, first, Obamacare has to be repealed because it's failing. It's failing the very people it was intended to help, but also it is crony capitalism at its worst. Who helped write this bill? Drug companies, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, and every single one of those kinds of companies are bulking up to deal with big government. See, that's what happens. As government gets bigger and bigger, and it has been for 50 years under Republicans and Democrats alike, then businesses have to bulk up to deal with big government. So we have to repeal it. It's tens of thousands of pages long. No one can possibly understand it, except the big companies, the lawyers, the accountants, the lobbyists that they hire to protect their interests. Then we have to give back to states the responsibility to manage a high-risk pool. We need to try the one thing in health insurance we've never tried. Health insurance has always been a cozy little game between regulators and health insurance companies. We need to try the free market, the free market. Where people actually have to compete. And we ought to have the government ensure that you must, and I don't use that term often, the government ought to do something, that every health care provider ought to publish its costs, its prices, its outcomes, because as patients, we don't know what we're buying. Now, let me just say, let me just say, I know more about innovation and entrepreneurship than anyone on this panel because I have led innovative businesses in the most highly competitive industry in the world for decades. The truth is, the secret sauce of America is innovation and entrepreneurship. It is why we must cut our government down to size and hold it accountable. It's why we have to take our government back, because innovation and entrepreneurship is crushed by the crushing load of a 73,000-page tax code. It is crushed by a regulatory thicket that is so vast we don't even know what's in it anymore. It is crushed as well by government bureaucrats who don't do their jobs very well and who are not held accountable, which is why I've said we've got to take our government back. And to do that, we have to know where every dollar is being spent and be able to move any dollar. We have to hack through this regulatory thicket, repeal so much, but also know what's in that regulatory thicket. We don't even know what regulations have been passed. Third, we need to build a meritocracy, as Scott Walker, by the way, is trying now to do in Wisconsin. And finally, we need to get to a three-page tax code. And yes, that plan exists. Just to be clear, you want to repeal Obamacare. But what's the alternative? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Just to be clear, you said you would repeal Obamacare. Absolutely. But what is the alternative? And what how I does just that said, help small we business? Need to give, the alternative is to allow states to manage high-risk pools for those who really need help. Look, I'm a cancer survivor. 
okay? I understand that you cannot have someone who's battled cancer just become known as a pre-existing condition. I understand that you cannot allow families to go bankrupt if they truly need help. But I also understand that Obamacare isn't helping anyone. We're throwing more and more people into Medicaid, and fewer and fewer doctors are taking those payments. The point is Obamacare is crushing small businesses. It is not helping the families it was intended to help. So let us allow states to manage high-risk pools. Let us try the one thing in health insurance we've never tried, the free market. Let us ensure that as patients and customers, we have the information to shop wisely for our health care. God damn. You know, for a lady who wants to have a three-page abbreviated tax code, mm-hmm. she, she sure is fucking long-winded. She is. I mean, come on. Yeah. Th- that was, each person gets two minutes to answer the question. Yeah, that was probably five minutes. I I, uh, I wish I had one of Ben Carson's hammers right now to hit <laughs> myself in the fucking head with it. Jesus Christ. This is what we mean when we say the debate was a snooze fest. Oh, I mean, it was man. things like this where... I can I can hear pod iPods and smartphones clicking off all across the globe right now. No, honestly, but I mean, you know, it is important to know why you don't like Carly Fiorina, yes. and you're not going to figure that out unless you listen to her. Absolutely. So there you go. That's why we played that. <laughs> there you go. Well, up next is Ben Carson being asked about his wacky tithing tax plan, and he brings it back around to. 1913, which the income tax, that's when it first became a constitutional amendment. Again, showing he just, he's underqualified. So Neil Cavuto was one of the moderators, and he's the one who asked this question. Yes. And I kind of picked up on Neil Cavuto's bias in several of the questions that he asked, particularly to Ben Carson, and this was one of the times. And I don't know if I'm being unreasonable, but he... You think that Neil Cavuto has a bias for, toward Ben Carson? Just a conservative bias, Hmm, period. Okay. Because when he asked the question, he's like, I guess you have kind of associated it with tithing and... No, it's not you guess. He has. Directly, right. He used the word tithing, and that's exactly what he said. If it's good enough for God, it should be good enough for the government, I think is what he said. Right, but almost the way that he phrases the question, it's like he's trying to put some distance between what Ben Carson said and Ben Carson. Right, yeah. And then he did it with the previous question we played about the trust issues, where he was really giving him an opportunity to distance himself from all the chaos that's been going on right. and it i don't know just the bias was just popping up for me creating a buffer yeah which shouldn't be done by the questioner no yeah well here it is first off dr carson to you you say you are in favor of a tax system i guess akin to tithing sir with a flat tax rate of up to 15 percent because you said if everybody pays this i think god is a pretty fair guy so tithing is a pretty fair process But Donald Trump says that is not fair, that wealthier taxpayers should pay a higher rate because it's a fair thing to do. So whose plan would God endorse then, doctor? (laughs) Yours or Mr. Trump's? Well, you know, when I say tithing, I'm talking about the concept of proportionality. Everybody should pay the same proportion of what they make. You make $10 billion, you pay a billion. You make $10, you pay one. You get the same rights and privileges. I don't see how anything gets a whole lot fairer than that. 
but you also have to get rid of all the deductions and all the loopholes because that's the thing that tilts it in one direction or another. And you have to set the rate uh, at an appropriate level. Now, I will say that there are a lot of people who say if you get rid of the deductions, you ruin the American dream because, you know, home mortgage deduction. Uh, but the fact of the matter is people had homes before 1913 when we introduced the federal income tax and later after that started deductions. And they say there'll be no more charitable giving. We had churches before that and charitable organizations before that. The fact of the matter is I believe if you put more money in people's pockets that they will actually be more generous rather than less generous. And it's, it's the money that they earn. And the other thing is I do care about the poor people, and in the system that we're putting together, uh, there will be a rebate for people at the poverty level. But I also want to emphasize the fact that as we get the economy moving, and I hope I get a question about how do we get the economy moving, uh, there will be a, a lot more opportunities for poor people not to be poor people. Because this is America, this is the land of dreams, and our policy should be aimed at allowing people to realize that dream. Thank you very much. So taking us back to pre-World War I relative to how we operate financially and collect money through taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Genius. Well, you know, back when Thomas Jefferson, he, well, it's just, listen, we live in a, a dynamic, modern economy, a global economy. Whether anyone wants to face that or not, you can't apply answers that worked maybe in, in 1912 to, to a, the system we have now. It, it just, it's ludicrous. He's a simpleton. He's the smartest fucking simpleton maybe on the planet. It's just bizarre. All right, well, up next, before I lose my mind and grab the Ben Carson hammer, Rubio, is talk they talked to him about his tax credits, and again, Rand Paul cuts in, and then it becomes kind of a free-for-all, and this is these are the moments in the debate that I thought were the best because you really get to some differences between the candidates and some truths or relative truths. Senator Rubio, can I just come to Senator Rubio? We're coming to you, Mr. Trump, in one second, I, yes. I promise. Senator Rubio, your tax plan includes a large expansion of child tax credits to raise after-tax incomes for low-income parents. A similar tax credit that you previously proposed in the Senate uh, was estimated to cost as much as $170 billion a year, according to the Tax Foundation. Isn't there a risk that you're just adding another expensive entitled program to an already overburdened federal budget? The most important job I'm ever going to have, the most important job anyone in this room will ever have, is the job of being a parent. Not the job of being president or the job of being a senator or the job of being a congressman. The most important job any of us will ever do is the job of being a president. Because the most important institution in society is the family. If the family breaks down, society breaks down. You can't have a strong nation without strong values. And no one is born with strong values. They have to be taught to you in strong families and reinforced in you in strong communities. And so when we set out to do tax reform, we endeavored to have a pro-family tax code. 
And we endeavor to do it because we know how difficult it is for families in the 21st century to afford the cost of living. It is expensive to raise children in the 21st century. And families that are raising children are raising the future taxpayers of the United States. And everything costs more. In 35 out of 50 states, child care costs more than college. There are millions of people watching this broadcast tonight that understand exactly what I'm talking about. They don't know how they're going to make that payment every month. And if they can't make it, they can't work because someone needs to watch their kids during the day. They don't know how they're going to save for their kids' future to go to college. And so, yes, I have a child tax credit increase, and I'm proud of it. I am proud that I have a pro-family tax code because the pro-family tax plan I have will strengthen the most important institution in the, fam in, in the country, the family. Neil, there's a point I'd like to make here. Neil, a point that I'd like to make about the tax credits. We have to decide what is conservative and what isn't conservative. Is it fiscally conservative to have a trillion dollar expenditure? We're not talking about giving people back their tax money. He's talking about giving people money they didn't pay. It's a welfare transfer payment. So here's what we have. Is it conservative to have a trillion dollars in transfer payments, a new welfare program that's a refundable tax credit? Add that to Marco's plan for a trillion dollars in new military spending, and you get something that looks to me not very conservative. Thank you. Governor, Governor Casey. No, I'm Let sorry. me come to Governor Casey. No, Governor Casey. Excuse me, I get to respond. Very quickly, Senator. No, I get my 60 seconds to respond. He's talking please. about my tax plan. Please. So let me begin with this. <laughs> I actually believe, first of all, this is their money. They do pay. It is refundable, not just against the taxes they pay to the government, but also the ta on their federal income tax. It's refundable against the payroll tax. Everyone pays payroll tax. This is their money. This is not our money. And here's what I don't understand. If you invest that money in a piece of equipment, if you invest that money in a business, you get to write it off your taxes. But if you invest it in your children, in the future of America, in strengthening your family, we're not going to recognize that in our tax code. The family is the most important institution in Nevertheless, society. Nevertheless, it's and not And yes, very I do want to rebuild the American military. I know that Rand is a committed isolationist. I'm not. I believe the world <laughs> is a stronger and a better place when the United States is the strongest military power in the world. Marco, Marco, how is it conservative? How is it conservative to add a trillion dollar expenditure for the federal government that you're because not paying for? How is it conservative? How is it conservative well, to add a trillion dollars in military expenditures? You cannot be a conservative if you're going to keep promoting new programs that you're not going to pay for. I may respond more quickly. Yeah. Quick, we can't even have an economy if we're not safe. There are radical jihadists in the Middle East beheading people and crucifying Christians. A radical Shia cleric in Iran trying to get a nuclear weapon. The Chinese taking over the South China Sea. Yes, I believe the world is a safer... No, no, I don't believe. I know that the world is a safer and better place when America is the strongest military power on the, in the world. Marco, I don't, think, I don't think we're any safer. I do not think we are any safer from bankruptcy court. As we go further and further into debt, we become less and less safe. This is the most important thing we're going to talk about tonight. Can you be a conservative and be liberal on military spending? Can you be for unlimited military spending and say, oh, I'm going to make the country safe? No, we need a safe country. But you know, we spend more on our military than the next 10 countries combined? I want a strong national defense, but I don't want us to be bankrupt. Well, and, and there is a middle ground. There is a middle ground that brings both of these together. There is a middle ground that brings both of these together. Which is that is exactly right. 
that we have to defend this nation. You think defending this nation is expensive, try not defending it. That's a lot more expensive, but you can do that and pay for it. You can do that and also be fiscally responsible. You know, I mentioned that the 25 programs that I put out today that I would eliminate them. Among them are corporate welfare like sugar subsidies. Let's take that as an example. Sugar subsidies. Sugar farmers farm on roughly 0.2% of the farmland in America, and yet they give 40% of the lobbying money. That sort of corporate welfare is why we're bankrupting our kids and grandkids. I would end those subsidies to pay for defending this nation. Senator, we need to move on. This is why we must combine, actually, zero-based budgeting with tax reform. Because unless we can examine and cut and move every single dollar of discretionary spending in the federal government, we cannot reform taxes and reduce spending at the same time. Ask yourself this question. How is it possible that the federal government gets more money each and every year, which the federal government has been doing, receiving more money every year for 50 years under Republicans and Democrats alike, and yet never has enough money to do the important things? The answer, all the money's always spoken for. All the money's spoken for. So we have to go to zero-based budgeting, which is a simple idea. By the way, there's been a bill for zero-based budgeting it exists. It can be voted on. Every dollar must be examined. Any dollar can be cut. Any dollar can be moved. We have to go to a three-page tax code. You lower every rate. You close every loophole. Why? Because the government uses the tax code to decide winners and losers. You have to strip the corruption out of the tax code to pay for it. You have to know where every single dollar is being spent. We need so to you can cut where you to... need to and invest where you need to. The two go to... hand in hand. We do need to move on. Mr. Trump, the, the U.S. has just... We, we just, I just, if I might... Very quickly. We have to make our military bigger, better, stronger than ever before so that nobody messes with us, and in the long run, it's going to save us. I agree with Marco. I agree with Ted. We have no choice. And I can say this with certainty. We all have a different tax plan, some I don't totally agree with. One thing we understand... Each one of those tax plans is better than the mess that we have right now. Carly Fiorina is that person in the crosswalk when you're driving who starts walking late and they're still in the crosswalk when the don't walk sign comes up and they don't speed up to get the fuck out of the crosswalk. They just be bopping along, taking their sweet ass time and make you miss your light and not be able to turn or go through the light. I feel like that happened with Ted Cruz as well, though. I mean, he was kind of, he was trying to get in there. Yeah. And he almost lost his chance when she started picking up where he left off. Right, right, And right. then he quickly started the talking middle, again. The middle ground. Right. But what I'm saying is she's, she's not even in the question. She wasn't questioned. She's just interjecting. So she should be courteous and speed it up a little bit. Instead, she slows it down and talks real deliberate, real purposeful, mm-hmm. real slow. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I do think that this defense thing is a great topic. And it is where someone like Rand Paul, he, he tends, really shines. He really shines because we don't need to add 
a thousand billion dollars to our defense budget. We just don't need to do that. Like he said, we spend as much on our one military as the next 10 nations combined. We can be safe spending even less than we do now. So it, it troubles me. It's the one part of the Republican, it's not the one part, but it's, it is one part of the Republican Party that really bothers me that they're so beholden to this military spending they want so much to to talk. Oh, you you think it's expensive to to defend this country? Try not defending it. Ugh, I got a buzzword and woo response from the crowd. It's just let's be reasonable about this, especially when you want to continue to spend more and more and more, and then you don't take care of the veterans once they're out of the military. It's the same thing with. Oh, you got to protect the fetus. You got to protect the unborn baby. But once the baby's born, eh, fuck it. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Anyway. So in that clip, Ted Cruz mentions again 25 sp- specific programs that he is going to eliminate or reduce. And earlier in the debate, he had named five major agencies that he would eliminate. Right. But he had a little bit of a Rick Perry moment in that he couldn't name all five agencies. He could name four of them. <laughs> And there was kind of an awkward pause. He said, I would eliminate the IRS, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Energy, the Department of Commerce. <laughs> um, and he, he couldn't remember the the next one, but he said, you know, this is all on my website, tedcruz.org. Go check that yeah. out. Basically kind of deferred to looking at the website to figure it out. But it was very funny because how do candidates continue to allow this to happen to themselves yeah. where... You know, it's just five agencies that you need to know that you're eliminating. Well, especially if it's part of your plan, you should just know your fucking plan. Right. Yeah. Well, Donald Trump was asked about the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and he, to someone who doesn't know a lot, and I don't know a lot, but to someone who really knows very, very little about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and these kind of trade deals, I guess Donald Trump could come across as somebody who knows what he's talking about. But as he was talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and started talking about China, China, China constantly, I was screaming, yelling at the TV that China has nothing to do with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Well, eventually, finally, again, someone cut in and made the point. And I think it scored good points for Rand Paul, who did it, and also really pointed out that Donald Trump is kind of a... a mook and doesn't really know policy like he wants to purport himself to know. Mr. Trump, can I ask you about the, yes. the, the, the U.S. has just concluded an international trade uh, agreement with 11 countries in the Pacific. You've said that ra- you'd rather have no deal yes. than sign the one that's on the table. It's a horrible but most deal. Economists, most economists say that trade has boosted growth and every single post-war president has supported the expansion of international trade, including the last three Republican presidents. Why would you reverse more than 50 years of U.S. trade policy? The TPP is a horrible deal. It is a deal that is going to lead to nothing but trouble. It's a deal that was designed for China to come in, as they always do, through the back door and totally take advantage of everyone. It's 5,600 pages long, so complex that nobody's read it. It's like Obamacare. Nobody ever read it. They passed it. Nobody read it. Had a look at the mess we have right now. 
and it will be repealed. But this is one of the worst trade deals, and I would, yes, rather not have it. With all of these countries and all of the bad ones getting advantage and taking advantage of what the good ones would normally get, I'd rather make individual deals with individual countries. We will do much better. We lose a fortune on trade. The United States loses with everybody. We're losing now over $500 billion in terms of imbalance with China. $75 billion a year imbalance with Japan. By the way, Mexico, $50 billion a year imbalance. So I must say, Gerard, I just think it's a terrible deal. I love trade. I'm a free trader 100%. But we need smart people making the deals, and we don't have smart people making the deals. The, the, the deal, as you say, the terms of the deal were published were published just last week, the detail, 5,000 pages of it. And 80% of U.S. Uh, trade with countries in the Pacific now, these countries, these 11 countries, is actually tariff-free. Uh, and these, uh, the, yes. the trade deal only affects the other 20%. Which, are there particular parts of the deal yes. that you think were badly Well, the currency manipulation, they don't discuss in the agreement, which is a disaster. Well, if you look at the way China and India and almost everybody takes advantage of the United States... China in particular, because they're so good. It's the number one abuser of this country. And if you look at the way they take advantage, it's through currency manipulation. It's not even discussed in the almost 6,000-page agreement. It's not even discussed. Was a separate, and, and as you understand, deal. I mean, you understand very well from the Wall Street Journal, currency manipulation is the single great weapon people have. They don't even discuss it in this agreement. So I say it's a very bad deal, should not be approved. If it is approved, it'll just be more bad trade deals, more loss of jobs for our country. We are losing jobs like nobody's ever lost jobs before. I want to bring jobs back into this country. Hey, Gerard, you know, we might want to point out China's not part of this deal. Yeah. <laughs> true. It's true. Yeah. That's right. That's but right. Before we get a little bit... So, where, well, that silence is deafening yeah, from Donald Trump. Yeah, where was where was Gerard? Where was Jerry this entire time? Where were any of the other candidates? I mean, I think Rand Paul is is a pretty polite guy, so he waited until the very end. But well, they're letting him hang himself, it I is guess. Complete right? Complete bullshit that no one was saying. Yeah, well, you keep talking about China, asshole. Like you're an expert and like you know the details of this Trans Pacific Partnership trade deal, but. You don't know because you're railing about China, who's not even, they're not a part of it. And think of how scary this is. I mean, Donald Trump is leading. Right. And he has no idea what's going on. And that is terrifying. Right. He just knows he can ramble and ramble and ramble and sound like he knows what he's talking about. And listen, when have you known Donald Trump to not respond to someone who attacks him? Right. He didn't have anything to say. Well, isn't, that, isn't that part of the problem, if I may say, Senator, that if, that if this deal is not ratified by, uh, by the U.S., by the Senate, then it would actually give China an opportunity to grow its economic leadership, which it's been seeking to do. And if the U.S. is unable to pay, take part in this trade deal with these countries in Asia, China will take the lead. There is an argument that China doesn't like the deal because in us doing the deal, we'll be trading with their competitors. You're exactly right. But I think we've sort of missed the point a little bit here. There is an important point, though, about how we discuss these trade treaties that I do agree with Mr. Trump on. We should negotiate from a position of strength. 
And we also should negotiate using the full force and the constitutional power that was given to us. I think it's a mistake that we give up power to the presidency on these trade deals. We give up the power to filibuster, and I'm kind of fond of that power. <laughs> we give up the power to amend. And I think really one of the big problems we have in our country is over the last century, really, so much power has gravitated to the executive branch. Really, Congress is kind of a bystander. We don't write the rules, we don't make the laws, the executive branch does. So even in trade, and I am for trade, I think we should be careful about giving so much power to the presidency. Thank you. That is where I like a guy like Rand Paul, who, who really does, listen, there's a, lot, there's a lot to bitch about about Rand Paul, but he does think from a constitutional standpoint about the checks and balances and that with one branch, you know, they are all co-equal. And if you have one branch that has more power than another, it's against the way that our government was set up. And it, it lacks the protection that was built in. So also, I, I'm impressed that he's such a policy wonk that he knows the details. You know what I mean? I mean, I guess I shouldn't be impressed. He should fucking know he's running for president of the United States. Right. I think Rand Paul is one of those people who, even though I don't agree with him a lot of the time, he is so intelligent and he knows the government so well, the Constitution. Yeah. And every time he talks, I just think, wow, he's a really intelligent guy. Well, it's it's they all should be that way. But they're not. <laughs> they're definitely not, especially on the Republican side. So up next, Ben Carson is asked about boots on the ground in Syria and uh, the reason I'm playing it, well, we'll get to it, but... Uh. Americans face security threats at home and abroad. Last year, terrorist attacks rose 61%, according to the Institute for Economics and Peace, with the most deaths occurring in just five countries. Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Syria. Dr. Carson, you were against putting troops on the ground in Iraq and against a large military force in Afghanistan. Do you support the president's decision to now put 50 special ops forces in Syria and leave 10,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan? Well, putting the special ops people in there is better than not having them there because they that's why they call special ops. They're actually able to guide some of the other things that we're doing there. And what we have to recognize is that Putin is trying to really spread his influence throughout the Middle East. This is going to be his base. And we have to oppose him there in an effective way. We also must recognize that it's a very complex place. You know, the Chinese are there as well as the Russians. And you have all kinds of factions there. What we've been doing so far uh, is very ineffective, but we can't give up ground right there. But we have to look at this on a much more global scale. We're talking about global jihadists, and their desire is to destroy us and to destroy our way of life. So we have to be saying, how do we make them look like losers? Because that's the way that they're able to gather a lot of uh, influence. And I think in order to make them look like losers, we have to destroy their caliphate. And you look for the easiest place to do that, it would be in Iraq. And if outside of Anbar in Iraq, there's a big energy field. Take that from them, take all of that land from them, 
we could do that, I believe, fairly easily. I've learned from talking to several generals. And then you move on from there. But you have to continue to face them because our goal is not to contain them, but to destroy them before they destroy us. Wait, wait. Is the goal to destroy them before they destroy us? Or is the goal to make them look like losers? This, listen, I understand you are an ROTC in high school, Dr. Ben Carson, but you are out of your element related to international relations, especially where it relates to military strategy. Making ISIL look like losers, what, are you, what is he talking about? I have no idea. Well, if we just pull their pants down, they'll look like losers <laughs> and the United States will be victorious. Mm-hmm. What the? He's he he's a simpleton. He is a fucking simpleton. You keep coming back to that. I think maybe that's your final decision. <laughs> it's definitive. He is a simpleton. Ugh. All right. Next up, Trump gets asked about Russia and Putin. And again, Rand Paul... He, he jumps in there and then, you know, Fiorina, she's got to get in there and talk real slow to ruin everything. So here it is. Mr. Trump, in a 2012 debate, President Obama mocked Mitt Romney's assertion that Russia was the top geopolitical challenge facing the United States, saying he was a Cold War dinosaur. Now Russia has invaded Ukraine and has put troops in Syria. You have said you will have a good relationship with Mr. Putin. So what does President Trump do in response to Russia's aggression? Well, first of all, it's not only Russia. We have problems with North Korea where they actually have nuclear weapons. You know, nobody talks about it. We talk about Iran, and that's one of the worst deals ever made, one of the worst contracts ever signed, ever in anything. And it's a disgrace. But Putin. We have somebody over there, a madman, who already has nuclear weapons. We don't talk about that. That's a problem. China is a problem, both economically and what they're doing in what the about South China and Sea. Russia? I mean, they are becoming a very, very major force. So we have more than just Russia. But as far as the Ukraine is concerned, and you could say Syria, as far as Syria, I like if no, Putin how about wants Russia to go in. And, Putin. and I got to know him very well because we were both on 60 Minutes. We were stable mates, and we did very well that night. But... You know that. But if Putin wants to go and knock the hell out of ISIS, I am all for it, 100%. And I can't understand how anybody would be against They're it. Not doing they blew up. Hold it. They They're blew up. It. Wait a minute. They blew up a Russian airplane. He cannot be in love with these people. He's going in, and we can go in, and everybody should go in. As far as the Ukraine is concerned, we have a group of people and a group of countries, including Germany, tremendous economic behemoth. Why are we always doing the work? We are, I'm all for protecting Ukraine and working. But we have countries that are surrounding the Ukraine that aren't doing anything. They say... Keep- is he asserting that Germany is a bordering country that surrounds the Ukraine? It's just a bunch of buzzwords of countries. Yeah, I don't... But- I think he's try- I think he thinks that Germany borders the Ukraine, which is fantastically, tremendously ignorant about geography. And he's running for president of the United States. And also, I want to point out, I'm gonna, we're going to continue the clip here. 
Uh, he still has not answered the question. Geography knowledge isn't important to be president. <laughs> I just... Keep going. Keep going, you dummies. Keep going. Protect us. And we have to get smart. We can't continue to be the policemen of the world. We owe $19 trillion. We have a country that's going to hell. We have an infrastructure that's falling apart. Our roads, our bridges, our schools, our airports. And we have to start investing money in our country. Did not answer the question. Donald, Donald is wrong on this. He is absolutely wrong on this. We're not going to be the world's Jeb policeman, Bush. but we sure as heck better be the world's leader. That's a, there's a huge difference where without us leading, voids are filled. And the idea that it, it's a good idea for Putin to be in Syria, let ISIS take out Assad, and then, then Putin will take out ISIS, I mean, that's like a board game. That's like playing Monopoly or something. That's not how the real world works. We have to lead. We have to be involved. We should have a no-fly zone in Syria. There are, they are barrel-bombing the innocents in that country. If you're a, if you're a Christian, increasingly in Lebanon or, or Iraq or Syria, you're going to be beheaded. And if you're a moderate... Uh, moderate uh, Islamist, you're not going to be able to survive either. We have to play a role in this to be able to bring... Is Muslim a bad word? <laughs> I think so. He did not want to say... He said moderate mm, Islamist. Yeah, there's no such thing as a moderate Islamist. That's the problem we're having. <laughs> saying Muslim, it's like saying Jew. Calling someone a Jew isn't a bad word. I think it's just being at the, you know, like how if you if you negatively speak about Hillary Clinton or there's certain things you can talk about at the GOP debate that will make Republicans really happy. If you talk about Muslims, not going to be very happy. So it's best to just avoid that word. Right. Well, he continues the rest of the world to this to this issue before it's too late. Assad is a bad guy, but we have no idea who the so-called rebels, I read about the rebels, nobody even knows who they are. I spoke to a general two weeks ago, he said, who's very up on exactly what we're talking about. He said, you know, Mr. Trump, we're giving hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment to these people. We have no idea who they are. So I don't like Assad. Who's going to like Assad? But we have no idea who these people and what they're going to be and what they're going to represent. They may be far worse than Assad. Look at Libya. Look at Iraq. Look at the mess we have after spending $2 trillion, thousands of lives, wounded warriors all over the place who I love. Okay. So He loves wounded warriors, yeah, Brittany. Yeah. There, this whole debate was just like filled with anecdotes. He's saying, oh, I talked to some general last week. You, right. You talked right. to who? Who was it? <laughs> and they just like told you stuff and you're like good to go with that. Yeah, I mean, what yeah. it, it, that's meaningless to us what this random person said. Like most of what he says, meaningless. And he's just going on a tirade right now of meaningless. Yeah, then he, he, he you know, he, he takes his little detour into wo- wounded warriors and how much, oh, the, the veterans, I love them. Ah, I love them. We're going to, it's tremendous. It's tremendous. <laughs> okay, all over. We have nothing. And I said, keep the oil. And we should have kept the oil, believe me. Believe we me. We should have kept the oil. And you know what? We should have given the oil. To, we should have given big chunks Listen. to the people that lost their arms, their legs, and their families, and their sons and daughters. Because right now, you know who has a lot of that oil? Iran and ISIS. You know, Mr. Trump fancies himself a very good negotiator. 
And I accept that he's done a lot of good deals. So Mr. Trump ought to know that we should not speak to people from a position of weakness. Senator Paul should know that as well. One of the reasons I've said that I would not be talking to Vladimir Putin right now, although I have met him as well, not in a green room for a show, but in a private meeting. <laughs> One of the reasons I've said I wouldn't be talking to Vladimir Putin right now is because we are speaking to him from a position of weakness brought on by this administration. So I wouldn't talk to him for a while, but I would do this. I would start rebuilding the Sixth Fleet right under his nose, rebuilding the military, the uh, missile defense program in Poland right under his nose. I would conduct very aggressive military exercises in the Baltic states so that he understood we would protect our NATO allies and would be allies. And I might also put in a few more thousand troops and in Germany, not to start a war, but to make sure that Putin understands that the United States of America will stand with our allies. That is why Governor Bush is correct. We must have a no-fly zone in Syria because Russia cannot tell the United States of America where and when to fly our planes. We also have a set of allies. We have a set of allies in the Arab Middle East who know that ISIS is their fight. They have asked us specifically over and over again to support them. King Abdullah of Jordan, a man I've known for a very long time, has asked us for bombs and materiel. We have not provided it. The Egyptians are asking us to share intelligence. We are not. I will. The Kurds have asked us to arm them for three years. We're not. I would. The Egyptians, the Saudis, the Kuwaitis, the Bahrainis, the Emiratis, the Kurds, all all of these people I know, by the way, understand ISIS is their fight, but they must look at all these groups that I know the names of <laughs> Emiratis and the Saudis and the, uh, blah, blah, the Kuwaitis. Look at me. I know more than Donald Trump. <laughs> we see you. We hear you. Yeah, it's registered. And, and by the way, the, the, the timer dinger has gone off. Many times, and she's still running her fucking mouth. That was an interesting thing about this debate where the timer would go off and the moderators, they wouldn't say anything. They wouldn't ever try to interject or make people stop. Right. See leadership, support, and resolve from the United States of America. Well, me, and we must have the, the strongest military on the face of the planet, and everyone has to know it. Senator Paul. Here's another point that I would like to just bring out to the audience that not one person standing on this stage has served in the United States military. Not one. And listen, I don't think it should be a prerequisite, but they all act like they are just strong on defense patriots. Oh, they love the military. Yeah, well, where were you when, you, when it was time to fucking serve? Where were you when it was time to stand up, sign the papers... And, you know, take a few years out of your life to to be in the military. Yeah. Crickets. <laughs> Crickets. Senator Paul, you, you, have, you have already said, sir, that that would be a mistake in not talking to Vladimir Putin or to rule it out. You've argued that, that, that it's never a good idea to close down communication. With that in mind, do you think the same applies to administration efforts right now? to include the Iranians in talks on Syria. I'd like first to respond to the accusation. We should, I think it's particularly naive and particularly foolish to think that we're not going to talk to Russia. The idea of a no-fly zone, realize that this is also something Hillary Clinton agrees with several on our side with. 
You're asking for a no-fly zone in an area in which Russia already flies. Russia flies in that zone at the invitation of Iraq. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but you better know at least what we're getting into. So when you think it's going to be a good idea to have a no-fly zone of Iraq, realize that means you are saying we are going to shoot down Russian planes. If you're ready for that, that is not be what that ready means. To... That is not at all what that means. If you have a no-fly zone, you control the airspace in that area. You you know just by electronic signatures, you know what plane is in the area. It's not like it has to be a visual confirmation and then you shoot it down if it's not Russian or if any plane is there, you shoot it down. That's not how it works. The, the level of naivete with these, this group is just astounding. They, they need to understand how things work, especially relative to the military in a terse time globally that we live in right now. Send your sons and daughters to another war in Iraq. I don't want to see that happen. I think the first war in Iraq was a mistake. You can be strong without being involved in every civil war around the world. Ronald and how Reagan, would you respond? Ronald Reagan was strong, but Ronald Reagan didn't. And Ronald send Reagan walked in away East. at Reykjavik. He walked away. He quit talking. Can I finish when it was time? time to quit talking? Can I finish talking? with my time? Why does she keep interrupting everybody? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Terrible. Yeah, I'd like to finish. I'd like to finish my response, basically. And, uh, if I may respond, on the, this yeah, is an important you know, question. Wait. This is. Here's the other thing. This, it really showed that the, the crowd had kind of turned on Trump. I think the tide is turning. Right. I'm shocked that you laughed at that because when I heard that, I was like, wow, what a dick. Um, well, it's for sure a dick, but it's also, why does she keep interrupting? Several people were interrupting. Ted Cruz was interrupting. I mean, I think Jeb Bush had several interruptions. John Kasich was interrupting. You have to interrupt at some point in order to get your time in, right? And Ted Cruz talked the most of the debate. So yeah, he, he, did. he was having to edge himself in there. But she got called out and in a very rude way that I don't think Donald Trump would have done to anyone else on the stage. Oh, I don't know about that. I think Donald Trump is dickish enough to to call anybody out. It's just it's easier to attack the woman on the stage. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Plus, it's it's in true style. He gets points for it. I laugh because I knew what was coming, and that's the booing. And it is, you know, it, it, it shows that his support is starting to erode. And, well, I think... Everybody in this room right now is happy for that. This is an incredibly important question, and the question goes to be, who do we want to be our commander-in-chief? Do you want a commander-in-chief who says something that we never did throughout the entire Cold War, to discontinue having conversations with the Russians? I'm not happy about them flying over there, but I'm not naive enough to say, well, Iraq has, has them flying over their airspace. We're just going to announce that we're shooting them down. That is, that is naive to the point of being something you might hear in junior high, but it's scary. But if you're not going to respond in a no-fly zone strategy, what would yours be? The first thing I would do is I wouldn't arm our enemies. I wouldn't arm ISIS. Most of the people who want the no-fly zone also favored arming the allies of al-Qaeda, which became ISIS. That was the dumbest, most foolhardy notion, and most of the people up here supported it. They wanted to arm the allies of al-Qaeda. Some of them still do. 
That's how ISIS grew. We pushed back Assad, and ISIS was allowed to grow in the vacuum. So the first thing you do is don't arm your enemies. Again, a good point, but it's it's armchair quarterback to a degree because you don't know that the, the rebels that you're arming to fight Assad are going to turn into ISIL. You don't know that. We know it now, but at the time, you don't necessarily know. And it's such a powder keg over there, and there's so many moving parts, and there's so many different denominations, quote-unquote, within Islam, little sects, that you don't, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. So easy to say, not necessarily easy to execute. All right, up next, Ben Carson, and they get into talks about the big banks and what we should do relative to allowing them to fail and regulating that entire fiasco. And again, Rubio and Kasich, they get their shots in as well. Dr. Carson, if I may, just on that point, despite measures taken, uh, as the governor says, uh, since the crisis to make the financial system safer, the major banks in the U.S., many of them are actually bigger than ever. Assets held by J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, the the very largest bank, have increased by nearly 40% to over $2.6 trillion. Do you think J.P. Morgan and the other big banks should be broken up? Well, I think we should have policies that don't allow them to just uh, enlarge themselves at the expense of smaller entities. And certainly some of the policies, some of the monetary and Fed policies that we're using makes it very easy for them, makes it very easy for the big corporations, quite frankly, at these very low interest rates to buy back their stock and to drive the price of that up artificially. Those are the kinds of things that led to the problem in the first place. And I I think this all really gets back to this whole regulation issue, which is creating a very abnormal situation. This country was declared its independence in 1776. In less than 100 years, it was the number one economic power in the world. And the reason was because we had an atmosphere that encouraged entrepreneurial risk-taking and capital investment. Those are the fuels that drive it. And what we've done now is let the creep of regulation turn into a stampede of regulations, which is involved in every aspect of our lives. If we can get that out, it makes a big difference. And even for the average person, every single regulation costs money. And it's, and it's shifted to the individual. So, and it hurts the poor and the middle class much more than it does the rich. They go into the store and they buy a bar of soap. It costs 10 cents more. They notice it. And the middle class, when they come to the cash register, they have a whole cart full of things that cost 5, 10, or 15 cents more. They notice it. It is hurting the poor. Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton won't tell you that that's the thing that's really hurting the middle class and the poor. They'll say it's the rich. Take their money. But that won't help. You can take all of the richest money, and it won't make a dent in the problem that we're having. We have to come back to the fundamental principles that made America great. Just to be clear, just, just, just to be clear, then you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't favour breaking up the big banks. You think they're they're big enough, they're okay as they are. As big as- I would have policies that wouldn't allow that to occur. I don't want to go in and tear anybody what down. What policies? I mean, that doesn't help us. But what does help us is to stop tinkering around the edges and fix the actual problems that exist that are creating the problem in the future. Can I just add what he's saying? Because he's right on point there. You know why these banks are so big? The government made them big. 
The government made them big by adding thousands and thousands of pages of regulations. So the big banks, they have an army of lawyers, they have an army of compliance officers. They can deal with all these things. The small banks, like Governor Bush was saying, they can't deal with all these regulations. They can't deal with all, they cannot hire the fanciest law firm in Washington or the best lobbying firm to deal with all these regulations. And so the result is the big banks get bigger, the small banks struggle to lend or even exist, and the result is what you have today. And in Dodd-Frank, you have actually codified too big to fail. We have actually created a category of systemically important institutions, and these banks go around bragging about it. You know what they say to people with a wink and a nod? We are so big, we are so important that if we get in trouble, the government has to bail us out. This is an outrage. We need to repeal Dodd-Frank as soon as possible. Let me, let me also say, Jerry, Jerry, let me also say that Jeb is, uh, what Jeb is talking about with the big banks is to force them to to reserve their capital of people who invest in, and they hold their capital so that if the bank goes down, the people who are invested in the bank are the ones that pay. That's what he's trying to say. Secondly, I'll tell you about Wall Street. There's too much greed. And the fact is, a free enterprise system is a system that's produced the greatest wealth for the world. But you know, Michael Novak, the great Catholic theologian, says that a free enterprise system that is not underlaid with values and we should all think about the way we conduct our lives. Yes, free enterprise is great, profits are great, but there have to be some values that underlay it and they need a good ethics lesson on Wall Street on a regular basis to keep them in check so we, the people, do not lose. And that right there is why John Kasich is a different flavor of Republican. Mm-hmm. Who has the guts to, to stand up and talk about too much greed on Wall Street. Right. That's, that's something you don't hear. Yeah, it's not a normal Republican talking point. Well, this same conversation continues, and they address Ted Cruz, and this will be our last clip before the closing statements. But they talk to Ted Cruz and ask him about prosecuting these criminal bankers and, again, allowing the big banks to fail or succeed. But Senator Cruz, on that theme, Facebook data shows that over the last month alone, nearly one million people, nearly one million, have been concerned about reigning in Wall Street, apparently believing that some have not been punished enough. So as an accomplished litigator yourself and a former solicitor general, would you go after the very people who believe and fear that Wall Street has ignored? In other words, the crooks that Bernie Sanders say have gotten away with a financial murder? Absolutely, yes. You know, I've spent much of my adult life enforcing the law and defending the Constitution. And the problem that underlies all of this is the cronyism and corruption of Washington. You know, the opening question Jerry asked, would you bail out the big banks again? Nobody gave you an answer to that. I'll give you an answer. Absolutely not. And what we have right now is we have Washington, as government gets bigger and bigger, you know, the biggest lie in all of Washington and in all of politics is that Republicans are the party of the rich. The truth is the rich do great with big government. They get in bed with big government. The big banks get bigger and bigger and bigger under Dodd-Frank and community banks are going out of business. And by the way, the consequence of that is small businesses can't get business loans and it is that fundamental corruption that is why six of the ten wealthiest counties in America are in and around Washington, D.C. Now, let me give you a contrast to Washington cronyism. 
Some weeks ago, a woman named Sabina Loving testified at a hearing that I chaired in the Senate. Sabina Loving is an African-American single mom who started a tax preparation business on the south side of Chicago. She found a storefront. She wanted to have her own business. She started a business. But then the IRS promulgated new regulations targeting tax preparers. They did it under a more than 100-year-old statute called the Dead Horse Act. Now, this statute and the IRS, in classic Washington crony fashion, had exemptions for lawyers and big fancy accountants, but Sabina had to pay $1,000 an employee. It would have driven her out of business, and Ms. Loving sued the IRS. She took the Obama IRS to court, and she won, and they struck down the rule for picking the big guys over the little guys. S Senator, I want to be, Senator, Senator, I really want to be clear here. Are you saying, sir, that if the Bank of America were on the brink, you would let it fail? Yes. Now, let's be clear. There is a role for the Federal Reserve. What the Fed is doing now is it is a series of philosopher kings trying to guess what's happening with the economy. You look at the Fed, one of the reasons we had the financial crashes throughout the 2000s, we had loose money, we had an asset bubble, it drove up the price of real estate, drove up the price of commodities, and then in the third quarter of 2008, the Fed tightened the money and crashed those asset prices, which caused a cascading collapse. That's why I am supporting getting back to rules-based monetary system, not with a bunch of philosopher kings deciding, but tied ideally Sir, to I gold. understand that. I just want to be clear, if you don't mind, that, that millions of depositors would be on the line with right. that decision. Well, and, and I just yes. want to be clear. If it were to happen again, for whatever the reason, that you would let it go. You would let a Bank of America go. So, so, so let me be clear. I would not bail them out. But instead of adjusting monetary policy according to whims and getting it wrong over and over again and causing booms and busts, what the Fed should be doing is, number one, keeping our money tied to a stable level of gold, and number two, serving as a lender of last resort. That's what central banks do. So if you have a run on a bank, the Fed can serve as a lender of last resort, but it's not a bailout. It is a loan at higher interest rates. That's how central banks have worked, and I'll point out, look, we had a gold standard under Bretton Woods. We had it for about 170 years of our nation's history and enjoyed booming economic growth and lower inflation than we have had with the Fed now. We need to get back to sound money, which helps in particular working men and women. What Washington does, the people who are doing well in the Obama economy, are those with power and influence in the Obama government, the people who are that's heard of working with, men and being, women, it, and that's who we need to fight for. Neil, that's the difference of being an executive. And let me just explain. Uh, when a bank is ready to go under and depositors are getting ready to lose their life savings, you just don't say we believe in philosophical concerns. You know what an executive has to decide? When there's a water crisis, how do we get water to the city? When there's a school shooting, how do you get there and help heal a community? When there are financial crises or a crisis with Ebola, you've got to go there and try to fix it. Philosophy doesn't work when you run something. And I've got to tell you, on-the-job training for President of the United States doesn't work. We've done it for eight years, and almost eight years now, it does not work. We need an executive who's been tried, has been tested, and judged the decisions that that executive makes. I don't like what the Fed is doing, but I'll tell you what worries me more than anything else. Turning the Fed over to the Congress of the United so States Governor so they can Governor print Kasich, the money. That would be 
a very bad approach for Senator So, Governor Perdue. Kasich, why would you then bail out rich Wall Street banks, but not Main Street, not mom and I pop, wouldn't. not Sabina Loving? Well, you just said no, an executive no, that. knows to step in and bail they out were, a bank. They were talking about what you would do with depositors. Would you let these banks shut down? My argument is going forward, the banks have to reserve the capital so that the, cap so that the people who own the capital start pressuring the banks to not take these risky approaches, Ted. But at the end of the so day... So you said you'd well, abandon philosophy you and abandon principle, but what if would you during, do if, during, if the bank was failing? Because if during... Well, what would you do you if what? the bank was failing? I would not let the people who put their money in there all go down. So you would, you would bail them out? No. I, as an executive, I would figure out how to separate those people who can afford it versus those people are the hard-working folks who put their money in those institutions. Let me, no, no, let me say another thing. Here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. When you are faced, when you are faced in the last financial crisis with banks going under, with banks going under and people, people who put their, their life savings in there, you got to deal with it. You can't turn a blind eye to it. Now, going forward, that's one thing. If you had another financial crisis, perhaps there would be an Thank effort you, to Governor make Kasich. sure that we could do. I just, could I just say, as a chief executive who's had to make tough calls to save jobs and to grow jobs, I think what's interesting about Dodd-Frank is it's a great example of how socialism starts. Socialism starts when government creates a problem and then government steps in to solve the problem. As a, as a chief executive that tried to save jobs, didn't like 30,000 jobs, she fired 30,000 people from Hewlett-Packard? I'm not sure of the number, but her, her record as a CEO there is constantly uh, critiqued and was not a, a positive thing. Right. And he, the other thing, and this is where John Kasich really, he shines. And he's not, this didn't do well for this Republican audience or probably nationally, but he's different. You can't allow sometimes a bank like Bank of America, let's say, completely fail and thousands, if not millions of people lose everything because they've deposited money with this bank. Right. He's thinking, he's being empathetic and thinking of the actual people and not just thinking of theory. Right. Rather than Ted Cruz is just like, yeah, screw those people. I guess I'm going to just have to let it go. Right. Anyway, it shouldn't be that simple. It shouldn't be so black and white. It it's a complicated issue. Yeah. And it was funny to me when, you know, John Kasich is trying to recognize that, that it is a complicated issue, that it's not it doesn't have a simple solution. And everyone's like, boo, we don't have time to have you work through this. We want a simple answer. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, that's exactly it. All right. Well, this leads us and brings us to the closing statements. Rand Paul is up first. And Senator Paul, we will begin with you. We're the richest, freest, most humanitarian nation in the history of mankind. But we also borrow a million dollars a minute. And the question I have for all Americans is think about it. Can you be a fiscal conservative if you don't conserve all of the money? If you're a profligate spender and you spend money in an unlimited fashion for the military, is that a conservative notion? We have to be conservative with all spending, domestic spending and welfare spending. I'm the only fiscal conservative on the stage. And up next, Governor Kasich. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if, if Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders were to win this election, my 16-year-olds, I, I, I worry about what their life is going to be like. You know, the conservative movement is all about opportunity. 
It is about lower taxes. It's about balanced budgets. It's about less regulation. And it's about sending power, money, and influence back to where we live so we can run America from the bottom up. In addition to that, once we have the power and the money and the influence with programs we shift out, then each of us have a responsibility to reach out and uh, to rebuild our families, make them stronger, and connect our neighborhoods. All that together, wealth, connection, family, America's greatest days are ahead. We must win this election. All right, up next, the slow pedestrian in the crosswalk, Carly Fiorina. Carly Fiorina, imagine a Clinton presidency. Our military will continue to deteriorate. Our veterans will not be cared for. And no, Mrs. Clinton, that situation is not exaggerated. The rich will get richer. The poor will get poorer. The middle class will continue to get crushed. And as bad as that picture is, what's even worse is that a Clinton presidency will corrode the character of this nation. Why? Because of the Clinton way. Say whatever you have to. Lie as long as you can get away with it. We must beat Hillary Clinton. Carly Fiorina can beat Hillary Clinton. I will beat Hillary Clinton. And under a President Fiorina, we will restore the character of this nation, the security of this nation, the prosperity of this nation. Because as citizens, we will take our government back. Uh, somebody teach her how to use a mic. Up next is Jeb Bush, or Jeb, exclamation point. Former Governor Jeb Bush. Jane Horton is sitting with my wife here today. Her husband, Chris, was killed in action in Afghanistan. And Jane spends her time now defending and fighting for military families. They're both heroes. I don't think we need an agitator-in-chief or a divider-in-chief. We need a commander-in-chief that will rebuild our military and restore respect to our veterans by revamping and fixing a broken Veterans Administration. That's my pledge to you. I ask for your support. Thank you. We rebuild our military because apparently it's been destroyed. Rebuild. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, up next, Ted Cruz. Senator Ted Cruz. 58 years ago, my father fled Cuba. As he stood on the deck of that ferry boat with the wind and salt air blowing. Oh, the wind. He looked back at the oppression and torture he was escaping. And yet he looked forward to the promise of America. His story is our story. What ties Americans together is we are all the children of those who risked everything for freedom. America is in crisis now. I believe in America. And if we get back to the free market principles and constitutional liberties that built this country, we can turn this country around. I believe that 2016 will be an election like 1980, that we will win by following Reagan's admonition to paint in bold colors, not pale pastels. We're building a grassroots army. I ask you to join us at tedcruz.org, and we the people can turn this nation around. All right. Marco Rubio is up next. Senator Marco Rubio. Ours, the story of America is an extraordinary story. It is the story of a nation that for over two centuries, each generation has left the next better off than themselves. But now, because Washington is out of touch through the fault of both political parties, for the first time in our history, that is in doubt. 
And that is what this election must be about, because if the next four years are anything like the last eight years, our children will be the first Americans ever left worse off by their parents. This election is about making a different choice, about applying our principles of limited government and free enterprise to the unique issues of our time. And if we do, we will not just save the American dream. We will expand it to reach more people and change more lives than ever before. And the 21st century can be a new American century. So tonight, I ask you for your vote. And I ask you to join us at my website, MarcoRubio.com. <laughs> All right. And second to last, Ben Carson. Dr. Ben Carson. In the two hours of this debate, of this debate five people have died from drug-related deaths. $100 million has been added to our national debt. 200 babies have been killed by abortionists. And two veterans have taken their lives out of despair. This is a narrative that we can change. Not we the Democrats, not we the Republicans, but we the people of America, because there is something special about this nation, and we must embrace it and be proud of it and never give it away for the sake of political correctness. And finally... Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Thank you. Over the years, I've created tens of thousands of jobs and a great company. It's a company I'm very proud of, some of the most iconic assets anywhere in the world. And I will tell you, I don't have to give you a website because I'm self-funding my campaign. I'm putting up my own money. I want to do something really special. I want to make our country greater than it's ever been. I think we have that potential. We cannot lose this election. We cannot let Hillary Clinton, who is the worst secretary of state in the history of our country, win this election. We will fight. We will win. And we truly will make this even more special. We have to make it better than ever before. And I will tell you, the United States can actually be better than ever before. Thank you. And that's it. So I guess I guess if I if I'm playing psychic or prognosticator mm-hmm. and I'm guessing how this is going to, to pan out, I'm gonna say Ted Cruz definitely increases in the polls. Mm-hmm. Rubio, he will too. I think ultimately Trump and Ben Carson are going to start slipping. And maybe not just because of this debate performance, but also because of what's been going on the last you know, week or in change. Right. So Jeb Bush, I, you know, I just I don't see him gaining a lot of ground from this. I don't think he did well. And uh, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz did. And I really hope that something that John Kasich said resonates with the American people and he he starts to make some ground. We can only hope. Yeah, no kidding. I just, I really don't want him to ultimately be running for vice president. Mm-hmm. Although, he would be a good vice president. Right. Which doesn't really matter because it's largely ceremonial. So, anyway, that's it, folks. We really appreciate your support, your donations, and your partnering with us through Patreon and PayPal. It, it, it seems scripted that I say it every time that we love you and we really appreciate you but you know it, it it's true um, we know that uh, your giving of money is it's a sacrifice 
and we we feel honored and humbled to be on the other end of that sacrifice and we appreciate you very very much and we do this for you so thank you very much we will see you next time tomorrow when we do our very next episode episode 171 of I Doubt It With Dollamore so with, for Brittany Page I'm Jesse Dollamore and you know the rest I've looked at some headlines so I know what my opinion is um <laughs> <laughs>